0: Hello and welcome to the St podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today we're going to be spending a little bit of time talking about a new trial which has come out um, about the use of tranexamic acid, uh, the intramuscular route as it was. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of the the main authors, um, Ian Roberts, who many of you will know from TXA fame through Crash Crash 2 Crash 3 and many other uh, major research studies. Uh, Ian, good morning. Good morning.
1: Very happy to be talking with you.
0: It's great. It literally has just been published. This is the uh, INTACT trial, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Study of the use of intramuscular TXA in trauma patients. So I'm sure everybody out there knows the background that there's the the, the study goes back to 2010, doesn't it really with the crash two study, which showed that uh, tranexamic acid in bleeding trauma patients um, had a mortality benefit. And more recently, we've seen crash three. Which, well, although there's some controversy about it, um, I think fairly well demonstrates that in mild and moderate head injury, there's a benefit for tranexamic acid in a uh, head injury as well. Would that be a, a fair, sort of very rapid summary of 20 years worth of your work?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it is, yes. So um, tranec- early administration of tranexamic acid is life saving in trauma, but the, the critical issue is time. So it needs to be given as soon as possible, uh, preferably in the first hour. And that implies um, paramedic use, and so if paramedics give it in the ambulance uh, or at the scene, it's given on average fifty minutes after injury. If it's given in hospital, it's more than double that. So this really should be a pre-hospital treatment, and that's why we got very interested in this intramuscular question because intravenous. I mean, paramedics are you know very capable of putting in intravenous lines in it does take a bit of time um, and you're supposed to according to the pro- summary of product characteristics infuse it slowly over 10 minutes which i don't think paramedics like um, 10 minutes seems like an eternity um, and so this is very interesting because uh, so i won't jump to the end but it that's why we wanted to know if can it be absorbed after intramuscular injection that's what this study was about
0: and the the other aspects of that is there are environments where intravenous access um, is is just not possible at all or is very complicated so austere environments tactical environments um, and in, in perhaps in mass casualty situations where gaining iv access is either just physically or technically difficult or would take too long to get round all the patients and in, in, for instance a major
1: incident. so you can see that there's some logic in it and um, yeah that's very i think that's an important one you could you can imagine in a major incident you know airway breathing circulation just um you know just do the basics and then just go around injecting people with a, an intramuscular dose of chanexamic acid that could be done very quickly
0: Yeah, probably jumping ahead of ourselves on that one (laughs) But (laughs) let's have a think about the evidence um, beforehand. So um, before we get to that stage, there's the study itself. So this isn't a reproduction of the the CRASH-2 or CRASH-3. So this isn't a large RCT. Um, It's a type of study which we don't do a huge amount of on St. Emlin's, but I think this one is relevant. It's a pharmacokinetic, pharmacokinetic study. So this is where a small group of patients were looked at in very great detail to see whether or not they um, absorb the intramuscular TXA. So ju- just, just run me through the,
1: the basics of what you actually did again. Okay, so basically we, we, know how, we know the level of tranexamic acid in the blood needed to inhibit fibrinolysis, and that's about 10 milligrams per liter. And so what we wanted to know is the rate of absorption of tranexamic acid from the muscle after intramuscular injection. And so the the, the challenge is we can't replace the intravenous dose with an intramuscular dose in critically ill trauma patients because that might disadvantage them. You don't, until you know the results, until you know if it's absorbed, you can't deny them something that you know that does work. So what we did in this study is we got 30 bleeding trauma patients. They got the first dose by intravenous injection. And the second dose, the maintenance dose, which sometimes isn't given at all, we gave that by intramuscular injection. And um, with pharmacokinetic modeling, you could sort of um, work out all of the absorption parameters and the pharmacokinetic measures. Um, And what you see is that, you know, with the intravenous, you get a sharp uptick and then it starts to come down. And then you see another uptick with the intramuscular And you can sort of subtract the two and, um, you know, with pharmacokinetic modeling and see what the pharmacokinetic parameters of um, intramuscular tranexamic acid are.
0: So there's a couple of key things in there. The first is that this was actually done in trauma patients. It's not been done in normal controls. And I think that's really fascinating because I think we were talking before the podcast that my teaching, and, and your teaching, I think, as well, was that the intramuscular route is just a big no-no in trauma. We teach this, you know, do not give, um, and intramuscularly. Don't well, basically don't give anything intramuscular, because the dogma, if you like, is that mm. things are not absorbed from the muscles in the shocked patient. But 60% of the patients in this trial were clinically shocked um, at, at enrolment, if I remember rightly.
1: Yeah, I mean, these were, you know, critically ill trauma patients. Several of them died. Um and even in shocked patients, we got therapeutic levels very quickly. So, um, you know, and that was my major concern that, you know, we'd, we'd inject tranexamic acid in the mu- into the muscle and it just stay there and not, not get into the blood until, until they're resuscitated when you don't need it. But that, but that's not what we found. So we're, you know, we're very excited about the results, really, because uh, they have important implications. <laughs> In fact, in fact, the interesting thing was you get higher blood levels in shock patients. And what this is, the reason for this is that the blood levels are a kind of balance between the rate of absorption from the muscle and the rate of elimination by the kidneys. And what we found is that in these trauma patients, it was absorbed from the muscle just as quickly but it was eliminated from the muscles a little bit more slowly, so actually you got blood levels faster in shocked patients. That was a real um, only only uh, only new data can tell you things like that. Yes.
0: Well, that, I mean, that's the great thing about science is that it's, it's really exciting when you find a result which is kind of unexpected. Those are the, those are our happiest days of doing any form of research, I think. So that must that must have been really exciting. The other thing was a question, of course, is how long does it last for? Because With the bleeding patients, then we want the TXA levels to stay um, within therapeutic range for a period of time. And of course, that's why I think um, we originally set off with the idea of the bolus and then the infusion, such that uh, patients who were continuing to bleed would have uh, continuing levels of uh, high levels of tranexamic acid um, and that it would continue for the period when we were, were most likely to die of the bleeding complications. So, in terms of longevity, you get you're getting a, a rapid rise in the the TXA levels. What about the the length of time? Because we don't want it to just disappear.
1: No, it was a, it was it was a very respectable length of time. Um, I, um, you know, it was a good five hours of therapeutic levels, and so um, it covers the period when you're most at risk of exsanguinating. So most of the effect of tranexamic acid is on, you know, all of the effect of tranexamic acid is on, it reduces the risk of exsanguinating on the day of the injury. After all, it's only a, you know, a short, um, a short heart, a drug with a short half life. And, um, so it covered, um, it covers the critical period. Um, the critical period is, you know, is the, you know, the first, you know, three or four hours after injury. and, And, uh, you get very good levels for, for quite a while with um, intramuscular. So I think the evidence
0: is clearly the head that is it, that an absorption um, in this group of patients. It's a relatively small sample. So I mean, I guess there's possibility that there will be, um, in a larger study, there might be a smaller number of patients who, who didn't have show these uh, kinetics. But actually, the, my interpretation is that the... the the profiles of all the patients were remarkably consistent which um is a is a is a reassuring fact well where do you see this going next i mean we've got great data from crash 2 mm. crash 3 that says that the original regime that the gold standard if you like um is worthwhile and um, so do we need to think about you know if i'm working in a large um, mtc in the uk um where i've got access to to the the standard regime is this something that we should
1: be looking at i think it's all about pre-hospital right so time to treatment is the most critical factor and so it's all about it's not what's happening in major trauma centers it's what's happening what what paramedics are doing and i think these results raise the possibility that it you could get int- you could get therapeutic levels of tranexamic acid faster with an immediate intramuscular injection, rather than a uh, you know wait until you get a line in and um, and then it, this slow injection. Mm-hmm. And also because because a lot of paramedics don't like the slow injection, they're saying, well, you know, we're still within three hours. Let, let, let's just let's just transport them to hospital and they can do it there. Well, that's you know that's not the best thing to do, because um, you know, just getting tranexamic acid into the patient as soon as possible is what's gonna save lives. And um also with that with, with some of the head injury, after crash three, the head injury in- indications, not all of those patients will will get an intravenous line. And so intramuscular could, you know, could have a- Um, you know, be particularly relevant in those patients.
0: Now, I think that's a really good point, actually. I think once we're in a a well-equipped centre, we've got lots of people, lots of space, lots of time, lots of kit. But when the, when, and of course, in pre-hospital environments, you've you've not got the, the ability to have so much concurrent activity. You're often limited in the number of people that you have available. And they're quite difficult to cannulate, quite frankly, uh, mm. major trauma patients. So the the timings definitely do make a difference there. So I can definitely see that, that that logic there. I mean, I guess I guess it's not up for for me and you to decide whether or not the guidelines change. But I'd be really interested to see what people like JR Calc and the uh, Faculty of hospital Care think about this, because it, it would seem to me that it's certainly on the basis of this, it's certainly an option if you're struggling. Um, then uh, then that clearly would be a basis of. Uh, Uh, And considering this as an alternative
1: yeah we've sent the results to um jr calc um and you know it asked them to consider you know consider their implications for pre-hospital trauma care
0: okay so i I really recommend people read the study if if they're like me they'll probably study a bit with some of the technical pharmacokinetics so uh, do find your friendly pharmacist and go through it with them as well Um, but i definitely think there's something in this and Going forward, I found a tweet. It was actually um, the from the military that they're looking at the potential of using these as auto-injectors. So you have the potential to use those. that are a bit like um, anaphylaxis, so use of adrenaline auto-injectors. So there's a possibility of using those in austere environments, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, can I ask you some other questions about TXA, if that's yeah. all right, whilst you're here? Please, please so do. So there's a couple, of, a couple of ones. Um, so the first one, um, I didn't tell you about actually, but uh, it's in the blog post that we put out today about the paper, is that uh, some units now are starting to think about um, using two boluses rather than a bolus and an infusion, which I think is a non-evidence-based approach to the use of TXA. So one bolus pre-hospital, one bolus in hospital, as opposed to the eight-hour infusion. It's an interesting idea. It would save a lot of faff in my world. But I just wondered what you thought about that one.
1: Well, what we've um, we've modelled that. See. The thing about pharmacokinetics is a bit like physics. You know, it's sort of um, once you know the parameters, you can work out all sorts of different things. We've modelled the, um, um, the difference between uh, one gram followed by one gram or a two gram, um, you know, or two boluses. Oh. And it's very little. You know, they're almost identical in terms of their pharmac in terms of their, the profile of blood levels you get a slightly higher peak if you give, um, if you gave a two gram bolus instead, you know, instead of one gram bolus and in an infusion, you'd get a higher peak. And so it's possible because the, the risk of convulsions might be, we don't get con, um, convulsions at the doses we used in the crash trials, but no. um in cardiac surgery, when they use very high doses and they get very high peak levels, they do get an increase in convulsions with tranexamic acid. So you would get a slightly higher peak. Uh, if you gave a two gram bolus, you get a higher peak Well, the idea of a one gram, a one gram at the scene and one gram at hospital. I think that's quite, that's quite interesting. Mm. Um, I think the answer, you know, there won't be any comparative trials. You just can't do it. Um, with the outcome of death, you can't compare these different. So you have to go on pharmacokinetic reasoning. And our modeling is that, um, you know, one gram at the scene, one gram in the hospital, pretty much identical pharmacokinetic, you know, blood profiles that if, that, that, than if you gave a maintenance infusion. The maintenance yeah. infusion is a faff. And a lot of people don't get it because it gets taken down when they go to theatre or for a CT yeah. scan or something like that.
0: Okay, so that might be something that we look at um, here in Verchester. Um, yeah. So that was, that was kind of interesting. I, I love to see that, how the science sort of makes us change and sort of what becomes dogma gets challenged. I, I just love all of that kind of stuff. Um, more TXA questions, I'm afraid. Um, there was a, a paper published in JAMA just at the beginning of September, which we reviewed, uh, which was another TXA RCT on, in brain injury patients. And um, it's a US study. I think it was actually conducted quite some time ago and they looked at six month outcomes from this. And They suggested that there was no difference. And that that was sort of in contrast to crash three. I was just wondering um, what you thought about that. It's a smaller study, um, but we had a couple of concerns with this one. But I, I wondered what your take was.
1: Well, first of all, the interpretation of the results, there was there was no statistically significant difference in survival between the two groups, but that's not to say there was no difference. In fact, there was 20% lower death, fewer deaths in the tranexamic acid group. And, you know, if you look at that result or if, if you pool that result with the crash three trial results, the crash, it makes the crash three trial results even stronger. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, even though it was sold by the authors as Because they like to do that. They like to talk up um you know, it's understandable, you know, you don't want to say, well, you know, our study of a thousand patients supports the results of the crash three trial in thirteen thousand patients. It's more interesting to say something controversial, but but in actual fact, um it's the the results are entirely consistent with the crash three trial and in fact make the crash three trial more convincing, not less.
0: Yeah, and the other thing I noticed in there is that – and I, I, it's not a criticism of them because I think they actually recruited or reported before CRASH-3 came out, um, and it wasn't a specified pre-analysis. Actually, I think it might be. But um, they pulled all the, the the head injuries together, so they didn't stratify by GCS, which, of course, is where CRASH-3 found its more interesting results. And so actually quite a, a large proportion of the patients in the trial were of the group that CRASH-3 would suggest wouldn't have benefited anyway. So the very severe brain injury. Um, yeah. They did exclude GCS three fixed dilated pupils, but in the sort of the, the, the four to eight um, group, work, there was quite a lot of that um, group of patients in there. So the numbers of whom, if you if you go with crash series, results, the number of patients in the the JAMA trial who could have benefited from TXA is actually potentially relatively small. So
1: yeah. I don't think it. Was,
0: I didn't change my mind. Is I, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I I think they did a good job in that. You know, recruiting. You know, it was a a big trial of pre-hospital tranexamic acid. Mm -hmm. Pre-hospital trials are technically difficult. Um, You know, they're they're quite challenging. So, all trials provide information, and 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 the more information is better. So, I'm always positive about any trial, but you have to see all of the information together. You can't look at one trial result and say, you know, this. You can't say, "Well, that one's positive; that one's negative." It doesn't work like that. It, it's all information; it's continuous. You have to look at it in the, you know, in the broad altogether. And when you do that, it's actually entirely consistent.
0: Yeah, and um, I, I completely agree with that. And on that point, actually, just have well, just one more question, if it's okay, before we sort of um, let people go back to their driving or whatever it is they're doing whilst they're listening to the podcast. Is I noticed that um, that your unit actually does allow access to the data through this freebird server and i'm not sure that's done by everybody you just want to tell us a little bit about that from a sort of a research governance and and sharing perspective
1: well i mean all of the crash trials have been publicly funded trials so we don't feel first of all we you know we don't feel that our data we feel that they're the world's data it's like a resource that everybody should use and um and so yeah after we've we, we normally write a statistical analysis plan, do the analyses that we think are important. And then, and then we just put the child data on, on our data sharing website for other people to use if they want to. And we did this with the very first crash trial. This was a, a trial of steroids and head injury. And we found that other people published papers from more other people published papers from, from the data than we did in a ratio of five to one so the these data sets like you know there've been a lot of hard work by doctors all around the world um including the u k you know it's a sort of public resource and um and also we feel like you know people should have people should be able to check the data you know and you know do statistical tests on it and all 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 of that sort of stuff because we we've got you know we just want to lay it all out there. <laughs> just be open about everything and we feel that's how we should do science really
0: now i i completely agree it's something we've talked about a lot and of course it's not just the researchers it's 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 the patient's data as well and and uh, if i was a patient involved in a trial and i'd agreed to to uh, give up my data my you know blood samples or whatever depending on the trial i'd want that to be used as widely and as as freely as possible now i know there's a big controversial areas i don't want to I'm not going to mm. go down the reason moment, but I just thought it'd be worth mentioning that, the, particularly for these trials, for those people who don't necessarily um, believe the results and there, it is a controversial area. Then that you know you can go and have a look at the data yourself. So it is very much open access, and I think that's so that's a, a huge strength. Yeah. And um, so from my point of view, I think people yes, they definitely need to go and have a look at this IM one. I do think it's really interesting, and I think it could guide practice. Um, it is a bit of a leap because we're taking pharmacokinetic data, but we're not probably going to get any better data. And so one of the things we always said on St. Emblin's and going right back to our best bets is we have to make the best decision that we have at any time based on the data that we have. And so this, as you said, it just adds more information into the mix. It allows us to make better, more informed decisions. So I'm really pleased to see it out there. And I hope people read it. Any final thoughts from you? Ian?
1: No. Um, thank you, Simon. I'm, I think that yeah, I, I think you covered the, the main points, and um, I hope people do check it out. I think it, it it does give us more flexibility in how we treat bleeding trauma patients.
0: Oh yeah, oh, I said it was going to be the last thing. There's one more thing I wanted to say. <laughs> um, no, it's because it's, it's not it's not it's not even TXA related. Um, you did a superb presentation at USEM on the meta-analysis and the controversies and some of the the, the real frauds around um, the. The, the production of papers, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. So, if people haven't listened to that already, and if they're available to get onto the UCM platform to see the talks on the recent conference, I'd strongly recommend that. I thought it was really, really interesting.
1: Oh, th- well, thank you, Simon, for that. It was a bit of a it's it's a bit of a personal journey. I, I started off doing a, a systematic reviews, and I did one where I subsequently found that all of the trials were, were fabricated. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh that was a bit of a, le- a steep learning curve for me I, I became much more skeptical after that yes and, and and
0: we're all skeptical and being skeptical is good because it's part of the scientific process ian thank you so much for your time i know you've got a million things to do um today and uh, we'll hope to hear from you soon at a conference but uh, yeah okay and thank say you, thank Simon. you to your team and uh, we'll see you all soon have fun